Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest is a gentleman who spends his time lost in the world of books. He was here last for a book uh, called Banvard's Folly, a book that described great failures in history, but along the way also the story of great developments, great inventions, and although he could not title that book Losers because the publishers felt it would not sell in America, uh, he titled it Banvard's Folly, and it was the story of inventions and inventors that went awry one way or another. And at that time, he said that his hope had been to uh, open up a bookstore in a pub in Hay-on-Wye on the Welsh-English border. Oh, yeah a town which a man named Richard Booth had sort of recouped from being kind of an eggs and butter market town on the down and out to now a major book-selling town. Mm-hmm. There are, I think, 22,000 bookstores and 400 billion books for sale <laughs> in that country. And <laughs> my author guest, Paul Collins, tried to live there. Sixpence House, lost in a town of books, is his account of this adventure. Please welcome him to West Coast Live. <laughs> One of the great pleasures of this book that, I mean, is ideal to sit with on a rainy day is that you do a lot of reading of obscure, out-of-print books that we would never otherwise come across, and you give us little snippets of them in your account, your adventure. I, I read everything so that you don't have to. <laughs> yeah. Um, my current favorite is uh, uh, one I actually mentioned in the book called uh, Robinson Crusoe in Words of One Syllable. An actual book printed. It, yeah, the title was pretty uh, self-explanatory, really. Uh, How could I mean already with Robinson Crusoe, you've kind of messed it up. Yeah, she also has to leave in the uh, the word Friday, uh, understandably. But uh, yeah, this was published in uh, 1867 by a woman named Mary Godolphin, and it actually it works. It reads perfectly well. And I, I discovered recently that there was a whole series of books like this. Uh, there's a history of Russia in words of one syllable, uh, history of Japan in words of one syllable, which I think begs the question. Uh, how did any place names get in these books? Uh, I, I don't know. You, you, uh, you describe in the book, too, as, as well as we know from your uh, uh, sort of faux dictionary that you also have, have come out with, but uh, that you love neologisms. You love creating words. And in fact, you and your wife and son are in London on an assignment that you've cooked up with a magazine editor because you've made up a word. And the editor is sort of like too embarrassed to admit he's never heard of it and has to be sort of so cool and hip to go along with it. Yeah, I did a, an article on uh, retro structures. Uh, oh, retro, retro structures. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, th- uh, this was a term I'd made up uh, to pitch an article. And I said, these are infrastructures that have been retrofitted. So, you know, like uh, <laughs> old, uh, old railway lines and, and uh, you know, old water conduits that now carry fiber optics. I didn't actually know if these things existed, but I thought, well, it sounds reasonable. Someone should have done it. So uh, they said, well, where would you find these? And I said, oh, uh, London and, and New York. Yeah. Get me tickets. Get me plane tickets. <laughs> but you actually do, uh, do seek out some of this retro structure around King's Cross Station, and there's a phrase that you use. It was not the tourist London 
and it was an area that was paved with kidney stones. Or, yeah, King's Cross uh, smells like it's uh, paved with kidney stones. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's uh, not the most pleasant area of town. The strange thing I've realized is looking through old books and old magazines, King's Cross has always had that reputation. It's always, and it's always the subject of some scheme to improve it and, and uh, make it a reputable part of town, and it never succeeds. So, uh, but you chose not to, uh, to, to go for the tarted up glories of London, but you and your wife wanted to find the bucolic marvels of a rural English village, and you gave up your life in the Haight-Ashbury of San Francisco. And did you really pack all 3,000 of your books and move them to Wales? They, a lot of them didn't make it past Oakland, actually. We, uh, you know, we packed up all our stuff, and we were going to move over there, but first we had to find a house to live in. And so all our stuff was sitting you know, with our movers uh, in their warehouse in, in Oakland waiting to get shipped to Britain. So we were kind of living out of our suitcases um, uh, for quite a while in Britain. Uh, however, I made up for that fact by, by buying uh, almost as many books while I was living in Hay, which is a very easy thing to do in that town, I might add. There's now a major literary festival there. It's a center of books. Uh, antiquarians have found their way there. And I get the sense, too, that and half the books are American. Yeah, the, the strange thing about Hay is that uh, the fellow who started the town, uh, or has sort of started it in its modern form, Richard Booth, um, he goes on these buying trips, to, uh, mainly to the US, although throughout Britain too, and he'll buy uh, up entire states. Back in the 60s and 70s when a lot of colleges and seminaries were going out of business, he'd buy their entire libraries, and he'd uh, put them all into shipping containers and send them out to the Welsh countryside. And uh, the result is, I mean, he's, and he's sent millions and millions of books into this little town so that a lot of uh, old works of American literature are actually uh, easier to track down in some barn out in the Welsh countryside than anywhere in this country. And Richard Booth is, is one of the characters that, uh, that you talk about in this story. And uh, how did he come to, uh, to set up this town for as a book? How did he want to revive the town? Well, Booth first uh, bought the, the old fire station in town in 1962. And uh, he, he had just come out of uh, Oxford. Uh, his parents sent him there thinking he'd be a, you know, a barrister or something respectable like that. And uh, instead, he became a shopkeeper, much to their dismay. Uh, this was not what they had sent him to college for, but it was what he wanted to do. He, he wanted to sell antiques. And then he got particularly interested in, in old books. And he uh, had grown up near Hay. And I think he saw the potential in the town. Hay is, a, is an old market town. It's where all the, the farmers from Herefordshire and sort of the surrounding area would come a couple times a week to sell their goods. And by the early 60s, you know, you had uh, truck transport and supermarkets and things like that coming in. The old market towns really didn't have uh, a reason for their economies to go on. And so he came in and he saw all these old warehouses and all these beautiful old buildings uh, sitting unused and uh, going quite cheaply. And he said, this is a good place to put a lot of books. And it's now uh, the site of uh, a major literary festival at the end of May and early June. And part of your desire to be there was as a writer, you wanted to be surrounded by books and you wanted to be able to have, it seemed like, tangents to go off on every day. Yeah, I... Uh I, I have a fairly random method of reading. Uh, when I go into a library, I mean, I, I might spend half my time looking for something specific, but the other half of the time, I just grab things off the shelves and I start reading them. And uh, 
particularly old magazines and newspapers. I, I particularly like that. Um, but yeah, the great thing about Hay is uh, many of the stories there, particularly those run by, by Richard Booth, are so incredibly disorganized. Uh, he's got thousands of books pouring in. He doesn't have enough employees to deal with, with all this, uh, this sort of avalanche of old books. And so it's, it's a mess. Um, and the employees set up their own little fiefdoms within the store uh, and, and sort of arrange it to their own liking. Uh, and there are just books all over the floors, up in the rafters, and, uh, and it's wonderful. I mean, if you, if you go there trying to find a specific book, you'll go insane. It, that's the worst thing you could do. But you go there to find books that you've never heard of before, you know, you, to find the things that you wouldn't even know to look for. And, and that's what I, I love about the place. The, uh, you also wanted to buy a place, and for anyone who's tried to buy a place in California, it was a very different experience. There's no agent that represents you. No, uh, house buying in Britain is a fairly uh, medieval experience. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's, there's no agent to represent you, so uh, only the seller has an agent. And frankly, the agents don't do a whole lot. Um, half the time, you wind up going to the house and you meet with the owner and they show you around the house, which, you know, if you've ever bought a house in this country, uh, you could quite often buy a house without ever meeting the pre previous residents. You're all kind of insulated from the transaction. And it's not like that at all. It's uh, very much in your face. You're dealing directly with the people. And the other thing is there's no disclosure of anything. You know, there's no termite uh, inspection. There's no uh, lead paint inspection. There's no, you know, if the structure's ready to fall down, they don't have to tell you that. And we're talking here about structures that are 400 years old. Yeah, they're, they're structures that would have, you know, in some cases, pretty good reasons to fall down. And, uh, and yeah, and they actually published lists over there. They're, the only thing that the sellers are obliged to do is they have to answer your questions truthfully. So, but if you don't ask the right questions, they don't have to tell you. So they actually published these lists of, of like 100 questions. It's like a game. And, and it's like, you, you know, you bring the list with you and you start asking the, uh, the questions of the owner. And if you forget a question, if you skip over question 53, uh, is this house about to fall into a cesspool? Um, you can buy it and find out when it's much too late. And also as part of the process, until the deal is actually signed, the, the people selling the property can continue to increase the price. Yeah, they can yank the rug out from under you and, and frequently do. It, it's, there's a term for it over there, it's called gazumping. Which, uh, sort of sounds like something out of Dr. Zeus, but it's, uh, it's actually, it, it happens a lot. And, uh, and then you, you made up another term to go along with it, or two other terms, gazundering? Gazundering, that's actually, I think that's when the, uh, the buyer does the same thing. Uh, the, the, the seller has already bought their new house, and you're the buyer, and, and you say, oh, you know, I think I want to pay a little less for this place. Uh, so that can happen over there, too. And then uh, I suggested that there should be a term called gazerping, which... Uh, is when the agent gets sick of both the buyer and the seller and, <laughs> and walks away from the whole transaction. What, what do you make a good cream slice? Oh, uh, you know, British, British pastries and candies. Um, I gained about 20 pounds when I was over there. Uh, uh, they're really just extraordinary. And uh, one of the things you'll find in a lot of uh, corner shops and, and bakeries there are uh, cream slices, which is this sort of pastry with thick cream on it. And uh, they're basically designed to ruin your clothing. Um, they're, they're just like structurally unsound pastry. <laughs> and and you, you pick it up and it falls on your shirt. 
And nobody looks at you strange because, you know, they all have cream on their shirts, too. So, yeah. <laughs> but didn't one of your, uh, your landladies uh, open some mail? You, you wanted to apply to be a member of the House of Lords? Yeah. Um, well, I didn't have much to do with my time. And so I thought, well, why not be a politician? Uh, I, yeah, they were doing this thing when I was living there called, uh, they were going to have what, what, what they called People's Peers. It was sort of a contradiction in terms. Uh, they had the House of Lords, but they were going to let the commoners in. And uh, only a few, like five. <laughs> and, uh, and so I thought, I thought this would be a good wheeze. I thought, well, they, they probably have good health benefits, um, you know. And the, the great thing about being a lord is you're a lord for life. So, you know, you could not show up for work every day. You're still a lord. Uh, so I thought, well, clearly, here's a job I'm qualified for. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I got an application. And uh, my, my landlady actually opened it by accident and was very embarrassed about this. Uh, uh, but I, I was even more embarrassed when I started reading it because I realized... Uh, you know, even as a, as a commoner peer, I was greatly underqualified. Um, I don't know. I, I think I, I never really wanted to be a lord. I, I mainly wanted to just uh, mess with them. Uh, <laughs> I thought it would take too much time. And, and frankly, they mess with themselves. So th there was a... And then all in all, it would end up being too much work altogether. Yeah, I, you know, I try to avoid work. Uh, there was actually a British journalist uh, in the 1800s who once said that the cure for admiring the House of Lords uh, is to go and look at them. <laughs> so I didn't know if I wanted to be part of that, really. <laughs> but along the way, you use that as a digression to explain the history of the American mailbox. Yeah. Um, one of the books that I found when I was in Britain uh, was this book uh, uh, called Puppets Through America. It was written by a puppeteer back in, uh, I think, 19... 36 or so, um, this fellow had put out a whole, uh, uh, Wilkinson had put out a whole series of uh, books about being a puppeteer in Britain and, and his travels all around Britain doing a puppet show. And uh, he had a lot of fans, actually. D.H. Lawrence was a, a big fan of his, of his work. And uh, yeah, he has this travelogue through America. Never got published in this country. But the funny thing is, um, in the course of describing America to his British readers, he has to explain what a mailbox is. He actually spends like a couple paragraphs explaining and, and explaining the physical structure of a mailbox because they, they don't have them there. They just have slots in their doors. The mailman always comes up to your door. Uh, uh, Peculiar, those Americans. Yeah, we're a strange bunch of people, really. <laughs> but you're also the, the son of British parents. Yeah, which uh, actually makes them seem all the stranger to me. Uh, yeah, my, my parents are British and so is my brother. I'm, I'm the, the token American in the family. And uh, my, uh, my wife, actually, her, uh, her mother and, and two brothers are Scottish. Uh, so I think, you know, we both went over there thinking, oh, we know what we're getting into. Uh, and, of course, we, we didn't. <laughs> the, um, uh, I just was handed a note here, an American writer friend who says, who calls the town the Way on High Festival. It, well, it's a pretty impressive uh, festival. It, it, I mean, bear in mind, this is a town of about 1,500 people. And uh, the, the town center, per se, maybe only has about uh, you know, five or 600 people actually living in it. And about 50,000 people show up for this festival. It's the, it's the biggest... 50,000? Yeah. Uh, it's the biggest literary festival in Britain now. And uh, Bolina should start a festival like that, don't you think? <laughs> yeah. Well, the problem is, of course, you, you can't get a room for miles around when the festival's going on. Uh, 
but yeah, you know, they'll get like Martin Amos and Zadie Smith and all these people reading in town. And uh, it's become quite a to-do to the point now where, you know, all the rooms are booked up like six months in advance in Hay uh, for, that, for that week. How's the river? I mean, is it a river that you'd want to fish in, eat anything out of? Uh, I think the water is fairly clean. Yeah, there used to be a, a tannery upstream, but fortunately that's been closed. So I think the water is probably a lot cleaner now. You have a lovely riff on, on speaking of tannery, of what the kind of books that you like. You like the kinds of books with red leather bindings from goat skin that had a bit of acid dropped on them and all the red comes off in clouds on your shirt. Yeah, if any of you have ever you know, handled old books, there's, there's actually a condition of old books called red rot. Uh, sounds like something out of Stephen King, but it's, uh, it's actually a, a, a problem with uh, books that haven't been tanned properly, uh, where they, they've been tanned very cheaply, where they just threw some acid in. And uh, that's really, was normally used for books that weren't intended to last very long. They didn't, you know, just sold cheaply. Of course, those are the books that I often find the most interesting, not the ones that were uh, thought back then to be classics, but the ones that were uh, considered kind of uh, throwaways or just, you know, not particularly important. Many of which you revive in the, in the course of your book. You know, I, I bet you're pleased also that this book came out before the summer's Harry Potter. Yeah, uh, my, my last book, when, uh, when it was about to come out, or a, a little while before it came out, my editor informed me that it was a very good thing that the book wasn't coming out just that month because Harry Potter had used up all the paper. Uh, so it was true. This is back in 2000. Uh, he said, you know, it's, a, it's an 8 million run of a, like a 600-page book. He said, you know, all the publishers here in New York uh, were having to wait in line because Harry Potter's used up all the paper. I'd like to, uh, to have you read just a bit from um, Sixpence House here uh, to the end that... Uh, if that's, uh, if that's all right. Looks good. Yeah. Um, we'd, uh, we'd been trying to uh, buy this place called Sixpence House, which was a pub, uh, like a 400-year-old building right in the middle of town. And uh, we thought it'd be a dandy idea to own a house that old, even though the floors were all buckling and everyone in town told us not to buy it. And uh, after we got our engineering report, this is sort of the conclusion I came to. Maybe parents don't belong here in the middle of town. They certainly don't belong in Sixpence House. It'll be a glorious home someday with enough love and money. But both are already fully accounted for in our household. We're a couple with a baby. And people with babies should not be in houses that need more attention than their child does. And we are, in any case, irredeemable city folk in our attitude to such homes. This asked Gail Ham Hamilton nails it in her 1862 book, Country Living and Country Thinking. And is this a book that you came across? This is a book I found at Booth's, yeah. People who live in cities and move regularly every year from one good, finished, right-side house up, uh, right-side right up house to another, have fallen into a way of looking on a house only as an exaggerated trunk. <laughs> we do things differently in the country. We live in a house until it cracks, and then we plaster it over. Then it totters, and we prop it up. Then it rocks, and we rope it down. Then it sprawls, and we clamp it. Then it crumples, and we have a new underpinning. But we keep living in it. I found this book in hay. I find everything in hay, it seems, except a place to live. <laughs> so 
What do we do now? Jennifer says. Well, I'd like to spend a little more time here. And then? Go home, I guess, someday. Jennifer nods. Now, she says, tell me where that is. Paul Collins, reading from Sixpence House, Lost in a Town of Books. And if you've ever had the pleasure of enjoying a bookstore and have had books suddenly come into your hands and uh, you walk away with one, you'll understand the, the pleasure of this book. And it's, uh, it's uh, fun to read it. And, and uh, where is home now? Portland, Oregon. Uh, just a, a few blocks away from uh, Powell's bookstore, actually. I couldn't help myself. You know, I, I tried to, uh, to get them to use the advertising slogan, suppliers to Amazon, you know, of, you know, of rare and hard to find books. Anyway, they wouldn't, or they didn't, or who knows, maybe they did. So uh, I don't care. Anyway, Paul Collins, author of Sixpence House, Lost in a Town of Books. Thank you very much for being here. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.